it's midday on the first Monday of Women's Month. And what better time to put up your feet and join us for Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, coming to you from the Artscape Theatre in Cape Town. I'm Cindy Moritz, and I'm delighted to bring you this month's choice of good books from our switched-on team of readers. Penny Lorimer reviews two unusual thrillers, one by a seasoned British writer and the other by a novice American writer, Joe County by Mick Heron and Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. Haunting, poetic and page-turning is how Vanessa Levenstein describes the much-hyped Where the Crawdads Sing <clears throat> Excuse me, by Delia Owens, set in a small town in North Carolina in the 1960s. Philip Todras chatted with Getaway magazine editor Justin Fox about The 30-Year Safari, a celebration of getaway photography, published by Jakarna. He called it a very handsome coffee table book with an impressive range of stunning photographs selected from the past decade of travel images featured in Getaway. Beverly Rose Muller read Carrie Mora, for which she suggests a strong stomach is required. It's written by Thomas Harris, best remembered for his Hannibal the Cannibal books. John Hanks believes Stewart's field guide to the tracks and signs of southern, central and east African wildlife is a must-have for every wildlife enthusiast and anyone involved with environmental education. Beryl Eichenberger reviewed The Wall by Max Annis, set in an upmarket suburb where the homeowners feel safe and secure. When someone comes in to find help, he doesn't feel the same. Melvin Minot indulged in two wonderful hardcover books of American origin, which are miles apart <coughs> Excuse me, in content. A Lucky Man by Jamel Brinkley and Dreyer's English by Benjamin Dreyer. Peter Soule takes us into a tumultuous White House in Siege, Trump Under Fire, by veteran journalist and media commentator Michael Wolff. It documents a White House driven by vicious infighting and a president who is described as erratic, irrational and unpredictable. In honour of Women's Month, Rodney Trudgeon spoke to Mike Bruton, author of Curator and Crusader, the life and work of Marjorie Courtney Latimer which is the first biography written about the East London woman and her scientific discoveries, most famously that of the coelacanth. Please stay listening for our simple competition in which four lucky listeners can claim one of two fabulous books that have been reviewed during the show. Penny Lorimer, you reviewed not one but two unusual thrillers this month, Joe Country by Mick Heron and Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. I usually prefer crime to spy thrillers, but I make a definite exception for the Slough House series, written by Mick Heron, the sixth and latest of which is called Joe Country. Slough House is a decrepit building somewhere in London. It's the dumping ground for British intelligence agents who've disgraced themselves in some way. They're known as the slow horses and spend their usual working lives performing tasks of paper-pushing drudgery, locked in mostly dysfunctional relationships with each other and, more especially, with their boss, the notorious anti-hero Jackson Lamb. He is a gift of a character who absolutely makes the series. He's a tactless bully, prone to highly politically incorrect opinions, drinking to excess on and off the job and farting loudly in public.
but his slobbish exterior masks a genius brain, an impressive cunning, and an exhaustive knowledge of where the bodies are buried, literally. Also, when push comes to shove, he is undividedly loyal to the staff he consistently belittles, the slow horses, his Joes, as he calls them, hence the title of the book. Most of his Joes have appeared in the previous books in this series, and every time I begin a new one, I wonder which of them will still be alive at the end. Other than Jackson Lamb and one or two others, they all seem pretty disposable. From techno-geek sociopath to alcoholic PA to drug-addicted agent with anger issues to accused but not proven paedophile, one comes to know and almost love them in all their narcissism and emotional vulnerability. The book is set firmly in Brexit-obsessed Britain, and other characters in the British government and the intelligence establishment are presented as dangerous and self-serving, sometimes buffoon-like, and the public as oblivious and credulous pawns in a kind of dark comedy full of satirical and often very funny dialogue. In Joe Country, the reappearance of a wanted and dangerous rogue CIA agent at a family funeral, as well as the disappearance of the 17-year-old son of a former slow horse, sends most of the Joes into the field, to Wales more specifically. Here, a severe snowstorm and an unusual lack of firepower for a thriller hampers but doesn't deter them in their efforts to sort things out, in spite of what the powers that be in Spyland do or don't prefer. I've been referring to the Slough House series, but I have to say that it's more of a serial in many ways, and for this reason I would recommend starting with the first book, Slow Horses, and progressing from there. But if you're a fan of thrillers, read Joe Country You Must. Like its precursors, it is a highly literate, page-turning joy of a book. Disappearing Earth is a very different kind of thriller. It's American Julia Phillips's first novel, which delves far more deeply and obliquely into the themes of loss and longing than is usual for this genre. The story is set on the Kamchatka Peninsula in far eastern Russia, where Phillips spent a year as a Fulbright scholar. It begins with the abduction of two young sisters, but instead of following the usual progress of an investigation, interviews, gathering of clues, etc., it presents slices of the lives of different women affected, directly or only peripherally, by the girls' disappearance. It's almost like a series of overlapping short stories, which each heighten the tension while gradually pulling together. Each chapter is written from the point of view of a particular woman, and each takes place during one month of the year subsequent to the girls' disappearance. You learn of the effect of the crime on the lives of schoolgirls, forced to change their habits and their friendships by mothers made more cautious or more bigoted. A university student from a family of reindeer herders whose white Russian boyfriend uses the crime to become even more controlling of her movements. The head of a cultural minority centre whose own daughter's disappearance a year earlier did not get nearly as much police and public attention because she was a so-called native girl. Only towards the end do you get the perspective of the single mother of the girls and experience a little of her guilt, regret and hope. Although there's no overt violence in this thriller, it deals extensively and in a beautifully subtle way with the concealed structural violence inherent in patriarchal societies and its far-reaching effects. This is what makes the book really emotionally engaging and interesting for me. I highly recommend it. The two books I reviewed are Joe Country by Mick Heron and Disappearing Earth by Julia Phillips. Vanessa Levenstein describes the much-talked-about bestseller Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens as haunting, poetic, and a page-turner. Haunting, poetic, and page-turning, Where the Crawdads Sing 
is the debut fiction novel of Delia Owens. She has also co-authored three non-fiction books about her life as a wildlife scientist, based on the 23 years she spent in Africa researching endangered species, and her time on the African continent was not without controversy. However, where the Cordite Sing is set in a small town in Northern Carolina in the late 1960s, with constant flashbacks to the 50s, Kaya Clark lives deep in the marshland. Kaya is abandoned by her mother and siblings as a young girl, and left with her drunken and mostly absent father, who eventually disappears altogether. Lonely and isolated, she finds both solace and family in nature. Reading the book feels like watching a fine artist apply precise brushstrokes to a canvas. It's also clear that this is the work of a writer who is closely akin to nature and understands what it means to be alone. The marsh did not confine them, but defined them, and, like any other sacred space, kept their secrets deep. Kaya befriends two boys. One teaches her to read and write, and the other promises her acceptance into a society where she has always been shunned. Although she's considered strange by the small society, there are some people who embrace her, such as Jumpin and Mabel. However, Owen's description of the kindly coloured folk does play into stereotypes, with sentences like, Mabel pulled Kaya right over to her full bosom, hugging and rocking her. It also felt a stretch of poetic license transforming Kaya from illiterate to an illustrious author. When a young man is found dead, the locals suspect Kaya, who they refer to as the Marsh Girl, and the book alternates between pre and post the murder, leaving clues and red herrings scattered among the words like feathers Kaya collects. The book's title was inspired by the author's mother, who encouraged her daughter to explore far into the oak forest, saying, Go as far as you can, way out yonder, where the crawdads sing. The novel's being adapted into a movie, and I would advise you to read the book before Hollywood appropriates the story and invariably loses the nuances. Worst-case scenario would be a Blue Lagoon remake. I gave the book to a colleague to read who said, The descriptions of the marsh are the star of the story, but then it deteriorates into novelishness. A concise and fair assessment, however, what I loved about this book was the shout-out for those living on the outskirts of society, with all its complexities, beauty, hardship and triumph. A most enjoyable read. Thank you.
That was I Remember You by track five. Philip Todras, you spoke to Getaway magazine editor Justin Fox about the handsome coffee table book, The 30-Year Safari, a celebration of getaway photography, which includes an impressive range of images selected from those featured in the magazine. The 30-Year Safari is a celebration of getaway photography and is edited by Justin Fox and published by Jakana. Justin, this is quite a journey for you as well. I know it's associated with Getaway Magazine and it's your 30th year, which is quite a celebration in itself. But what I was fascinated by, as a magazine that focuses on travel, obviously the most important thing is the image and the way you're exciting people to go and see and discover. And it's a 30-year history, which I find also pretty remarkable. So first of all, tell us a little bit about how it all began from the very early days of having competitions and getting people involved. Getaway has been on, on one hell of a journey for the last 30 years. And, uh, Pun intended. Yes. <laughs> they, uh, it started out in 1989 as, uh, as the first real South African travel magazine that was, was heading into the continent. And it was an auspicious time, 1989, for South Africa and for people who wanted to travel into the continent after all those years of sanctions. And at that moment, we also launched what was called the Getaway Gallery, which is a photographic competition, which is still running today. It was probably the only place that of photographers and semi-professionals could have their work regularly judged and, and published. And it became an incredibly popular competition and still running today. And so what this book is, is both a celebration of our journalists' f- photographs, but I wanted to include those incredible photographs of our readers that have that have really thrilled us over the years and kept us on our toes, because the journalists have had to often try and keep up with the readers who often have more time in the Kruger Park or on holiday and come back with the most astonishing image. And not having to meet a deadline. Exactly. <laughs> also, it's not the first time you've done this. It's, in fact, your fourth publication focusing on the images from Getaway Magazine. Yes. So, yes, this is number four. The first one was just the reader's images. The second one was just the journalist's images. The third one was just the reader's. And then this time I've tried to have a blend of both as a sort of a, a birthday celebration looking back over that incredible history of 30 years. Okay, before we talk about the images currently, over the last 30 years, a lot has changed in the photographic industry, as it were, and where you take a photograph. What are the changes that you perhaps have noticed, and to what extent has the digital format yeah. changed things for you? It's been more than changes. It's been a complete revolution. The, ho- the whole industry has changed radically. So I spent the first part of my career, I started in 1998 at Getaway, the first seven or eight years shooting on film. We all shot on film, shooting on very slow Fuji Velvia 50 ASA, a wonderful medium. And then we all had this radical change. Between 2004 and 2007, everything changed changed dramatically and digital is a democratizing force so you have this massive number of photographs that are pouring in from your readers and from your journalists thousands and thousands whereas we were always being very conservative because film was was very expensive but also the post-production and all the photoshop and manipulation of images has also transformed the industry completely and then about five or six years ago with smartphones, the cell phone photography smartphone photography has been another mini revolution and allowed many more people to take really good photographs uh, uh, using their telephones and so 
now we have e- uh, photographs that are being published in the magazine that are c- just coming from smartphones. And obviously not the cover or not the really big images, but but remarkable stuff pouring in. So there's been these two phases of, of, of radical change that I've lived through. Um, some of it's been very exciting, and some of it, I mean, I still have a nostalgic hankering after the qualities of film, but then I'm an old fuddy-duddy, I suppose. But there is a very particular quality that you are able to get, even using, as you say, the cell phone. And the, you know, the, the pixelation is pretty good and all of that sort of stuff. But to what extent are you finding that people are now, because of that, able to manipulate the photo more? And perhaps some of the imagery we're seeing isn't the image, yes. but a bit highly doctored image. Does that really come through? Yeah, you see it a lot with both the journalists and the readers' submissions. And what I try and look for is an image that, that is not too heavily ma- manipulated. I want the image, certainly both in the magazine and in this book, to look very close to what the eye would have seen. So where there's overt or extreme manipulation, then we then we don't look at it. We, we actually don't want those because Getaway is about, it's about realism and it's about trying to capture Africa as it is, not the highly doctored image. So authenticity is high up on your list of... Top of the list, makes, still, still top of the list. But what intrigues me is also grabbing the moment. And the one time where sometimes the moment is ages is particularly in the field of wildlife. Yeah, for a lot of phot- photographers to get that great image, it's it's spending days, weeks, maybe even months going back to the same waterhole, sitting there all day, getting pins and needles, being bored out of your mind, waiting for that, that unique moment. And a lot of the images in this book were were those unique moments that, that you don't get very often, that, that are captured uh, perfectly with the right light and the right speed and the right aperture in the right moment at the right time of day with the photography in the right place. That's hard. How much is it intuition creativity or just damn good luck it's a bit of all three and and i suppose the most important one is time time in the field right i see you've also divided it up into people of africa life in the wild water worlds landscapes up close and taking flight and do you want to perhaps comment on those divisions and the differences you might find in them yeah those five or six categories are probably the most representative of the kinds of images we have in the magazine generally so people landscapes animals the ocean birds and close-ups macro photography so for our readers and our journalists those are the things we focus on Um, and each of them requires slightly different techniques slightly different lenses but as again I I come back to time you know time in the field and, and and time spent shooting you know learning learning your craft and learning to know your camera so that it becomes second nature well you certainly need to pick up a copy of this wonderful book it is a celebration of getaway city's birthday it also tells a good story and as you put it justin it is it was a long journey so the 30-year safari a celebration of getaway photography it's edited by justin fox who took some of the photos as well and certainly a wonderful book to have on your coffee table It's competition time, and this month we're treating listeners to two giveaways, and there will be four winners. We have three copies of Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, and one copy of The 30-Year Safari, edited by Justin Fox, to give away. As easy as can be, all you have to do is call us on 021-401-1013 and state your preference. Winners will be contacted after the show, so don't delay and get calling now. The number again, 021-401-1013. Beverly Rose Muller wasn't too sure about Kari Mora by Thomas Harris, the, young, the story of a young immigrant working in Miami who encounters a great treasure and a ruthless gang of human traffickers. 
Beverly, you suggest a strong stomach is required for this one. The name of Hannibal the Cannibal is known to all lovers of psychological murder mysteries. And here is another book out by his creator, Thomas Harris. And I should warn you that Carly Mora is not on the same disturbing but high level as his earlier works. Any mention of Dr. Hannibal Lecter sends a spooky shiver. Ooh, he appears in Harris's most famous book, The Silence of the Lambs, which also became a spectacular movie hit, winning five Oscars and giving the actor Anthony Hopkins perhaps his most famous role as the brilliant, cultivated, and chilling doctor who harbored the unfortunate habit of eating his patients as well as others he disliked. And yet it was with Dr. Lecter's help that agent Clarice Starling, wonderfully acted by Jodie Foster, was able to track down another frightful serial killer. The Lambs was followed by a book sequel titled simply Hannibal, set in the beautiful city of Florence and again featuring Agent Starling. Readers developed the odd feeling about Hannibal that as long as you were polite and were interested in the arts and culture, he would actually like you, and therefore maybe you would escape being eaten. He was simply fascinating in a rather awful way. Now, here's the really weird part. The character of Hannibal was based on a real-life Mexican doctor who had killed his gay lover and chopped him up. The author, still in his 20s, met him when he was interviewing a serial killer in the same jail and heard how the doctor had saved the life of an inmate. He managed to wangle an interview with the doctor, who he said had a certain elegance about him. Amazingly, after serving 20 years in prison, the doctor was released in 2000, and as a free man, he continued his medical practice, providing care to the poor until he died in 2009. Well, sometimes truth really is stranger than fiction. Harris eventually transformed this true-life character into Hannibal with huge international sales. This latest book is not in that league, and there is no elegance in it at all. Kara Mora is a young immigrant who has escaped grim brutality in her home country, Colombia, and is now living more or less under the radar in Miami, Florida, working many menial jobs. One of the houses she caretakes on the Miami waterfront belongs to a violent sociopath who has hidden a fortune in gold on its premises while preying on young women to fulfill the nastiest fantasies of rich old men. And yes, cannibalism does certainly rear its head. All Kari wants is a quiet life and a simple dwelling with what remains of her family. If so, she is in the wrong place at the wrong time. The chapters and sentences are short, brutal, and blood-curdling. There's not a single character that fully comes to life as a complete, if weird, personality, and that includes the enigmatic Kari herself. And in some of the episodes are so gruesome that I not only felt yuck, but also that they were almost gratuitous, as if Thomas Harris feels he has to outdo his own gory reputation. My suggestion, unless this is the sort of reading you go for, is to return to his earlier books, including, including the very good Red Dragon, a sort of prequel to the central Hannibal books. And if you like eating kidneys, 
well, I would really avoid this book. The book is Kari Mora by Thomas Harris, published by Heinemann. From the gory to the uplifting, John Hanks suggests that Stewart's field guide to the tracks and signs of southern, central and east African wildlife is a must-have for every wildlife enthusiast and anyone involved with environmental education. Here is a book which every wildlife enthusiast and anyone involved with environmental education must have. I'm referring to the new edition of Stewart's Field Guide to the Tracks and Signs of Southern, Central and East African Wildlife, a superbly illustrated production which cannot fail to stimulate and renew an interest in the extraordinary celebrations of the continent's wildlife diversity. There is so much more than just a field guide here, which you can use when you want to identify droppings or tracks of mammals you come across in the field. Chris and Matilda Stewart have succeeded in producing a book that you will want to read before you go into the field. It's full of compelling extras, including bird pellets and their tracks, and also the tracks of reptiles, insects and other invertebrates and three really interesting chapters on other identification tools, such as feeding signs, tree scratching, scent marking bird nests, and even the shelters made by some of the mammals and insects. I say this because the tracks and signs presented will open up a whole new world to many people who, for the first time, will be able to recognise the presence of a particular species without ever seeing it. I'm sure this book will also be an inspiration for many to embrace a new way of looking for wildlife, starting from the concise guidelines for interpreting tracks and signs and how to measure and record the sightings, which is a key part of the identification process, to the excellent and easy-to-use keys to species found in large parts of the continent, coupled with the most useful text and illustrations of ancillary identification tools. The Stuarts must be congratulated on encouraging an innovative approach to time spent in the field. Just one example. Many different mammals, birds and invertebrates dig holes on the ground to access food or for shelter. In some cases, excavator identification is straightforward, particularly from the tracks, droppings and type of food taken. The Cape porcupine that recently raided my garden in Cape Town at night left no doubt as who was the culprit by the tracks, droppings and the quills. But it's not always that easy as tracks do differ depending on the animal's habitat and living conditions and droppings can vary too, greatly influenced by recent food and general, general well-being of the animal as anyone who has dogs will tell you. How you interpret the evidence presented is part of the real enjoyment of this approach. As any experienced tracker would tell you, never jump to conclusions. Spend time, look for other clues. With some thought and detective work, you can not only identify the animal involved, but also establish what it was doing. As the authors state in their introduction, tracking and reading signs is an absorbing and rewarding pastime. I could not agree more. Please buy this book and get hooked if you are not already. The title again, Stewart's Field Guide to the Tracks and Signs of Southern, Central and East African Wildlife. It's published by Straight Nature in Cape Town and you can buy a copy for 390 rand. When you're alone and I 
life is making you lonely, you can always go downtown. When you've got worries, all the noise and the hurry seems to help. I know downtown. Just listen to the music of the traffic in the city. Linger on the sidewalk where the neon signs are pretty. How can you lose? The lights are much brighter there. You can forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No finer place for sure. Downtown, everything's waiting for you. Your problems surround you. There are movie shows downtown. Maybe you know some little places to go to where you never close downtown. Just listen to the rhythm of the gentle bossing over. You'll be dancing with them soon before the night is over. Happy again. The lights are much brighter there. You can't forget all your troubles, forget all your cares. So go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No finer place for sure. Downtown, everything's waiting for you. To help and understand you, someone who is just like you, who needs a gentle hand to guide you along. So maybe I'll see you there. We can forget all our troubles, forget all our cares. So go downtown. Things will be great when you're downtown. No finer place for sure. Downtown, everything's waiting for you. Was Downtown by Louise Howlett. Beryl Eichenberger was drawn into the wall by Max Anath. Set in an upmarket suburb of East London, it manages to touch on issues like gun violence and racism with a side serving of humour. Spicy Patagonian calamari. Chargrill beef sirloin, almond and espresso crumble with palm sugar whipped cream, savoured to the sounds of live jazz. The Stratus Room in the Radisson Blue Hotel and Residence is serving the best winter specials and the best live jazz entertainment from Thursday to Sunday. Enjoy a choice of two dishes from the starter, the main, and the dessert. All this for just 200 rand. To book, call the Stratus Room on 467 4000. If we put a crying child in your arms, your first instinct may be to check, hmm, is the nappy dry? If we asked you to buy the crying child a nappy, what would you say? Every year, free of charge, 
St. Joseph's Home in Cape Town cares for more than 500 ill children from poverty-stricken communities with life-threatening conditions. Every 24 hours, St. Joseph's use 1,000 disposable nappies. Their annual nappy bill is over 220,000 rand. Please will you donate towards their happy nappy drive. Visit stjosephshome.org.za The Cape Town Concert Series returns to the Baxter Concert Hall on Saturday, 10th August, with a special multimedia evening featuring violin and viola specialist Gina Bukas in collaboration with pianist Estia Kruger. This concert is dedicated to Huberta Rupert and is a celebration of women who have triumphed against adversity, with stories ranging from Chopin's lover George Sand to the first woman in space. Tickets available now from Web Tickets. For more information on this and all our wonderful concerts coming up, visit ctconcerts.co.za. World-famous Truth Coffee presents Truth After Dark, a brand-new late-night dessert-only dining experience. Orchestrated by the Paris-born Michelin star pastry chef Kamal, you can enjoy a taste symphony of aesthetic desserts paired with Truth Roasting's artisanal coffees. Truth After Dark at Truth Coffee in Batencourt Street, Tuesdays to Saturdays, 6 p.m. to midnight. Bookings are essential. Book online at truthcoffee.com or message them on Facebook. Escape to Truth After Dark. Right, let's try that again. Beryl Eichenberger was drawn into the wall by Max Annis. Set in an upmarket suburb of East London, it manages to touch on issues like gun violence and racism with a side-serving of humour. It's published by Catalyst Press and distributed by LARPA. Picture this, a gated community in an upmarket suburb of East London. Gated and protected, the homeowners feel safe and secure. But what if someone comes in to find help and then gets caught up in a burglary and murder by mistake? This is a story of entrapment, of a young man who goes behind the wall and finds himself unable to get out, an outsider, and you know what gated communities think of outsiders. Moses' car breaks down close to the gated community of the Pines, where he realises he has a university classmate who he hopes can help him. Motivated by the thought of the cold beer and girlfriend waiting at home for him, all Moses wants to do is get home. Slipping into the complex past security, and it was oh so easy, he is then confronted by a tranquil, ordered complex, which offers little in the way of direction to his friend's home, as so much looks the same. Behind the wall, he is confronted with a community that is in fact, unknowingly, under siege, and he accidentally lands in the middle of a murder, a burglary, and vigilante residence. Skopskit and Donna, or mayhem and murder, and the required chase is the result as we follow poor Moses in his quest to escape back over the wall as he becomes more and more entangled in the goings-on. Racy, pacey, and funny, and if what happens wasn't also touching on the reality of the South Africa we live in today, the wall would just be a quick read to cosy up with on a chilly day. Author Maxanus, who lived in East London, taught at the University of Fort Hare, but has now returned to his homeland of Germany, and offers a picture of our still racially divided and suspicious society with tongue-in-cheek humour that overrides what could be seen as stereotyping. He presents a thriller that will make you look twice or three times, at the gated community you live in or thought you might want to live in. 
Fast and furious with all the happenings that make a good thriller, this goes one step further to inject a humour that, as an observer, would seem a tad unreal. However, in the real world of South African daily life, is perhaps more real than is comfortable. What the book does reveal is still the great divide between black and white, the virtual war that persists, and the suspicion that still goes with it. Characters are well drawn, if a little caricatured, but that goes with the pace of the book. For my taste, this is more like a Leon Schuster movie script, which I suspect is exactly what the author wanted. But the antics and the outcomes are well worth it. Last chance to win one of four giveaways this month. We have three copies of Where the Crawdads Sing and one copy of The Thirty Year Safari, edited by Justin Fox, up for grabs. As easy as can be, all you have to do is call us on o two one. Four zero one one zero one three, and state your preference. There will be four lucky winners, and they will be contacted after the show. So don't delay and call in now. Melvin Minar indulged in two wonderfully crafted, though dissimilar books: Dreyer's English by Benjamin Dreyer and A Lucky Man by Jamel Brinkley. If you'll pardon again my indulgence this month, I'm punting the pleasures of two wonderful hardcover books of American origin, even though they are miles apart content-wise. What they do share, what we analog book lovers admire so much, is handsome production value. They are lovely to look at, hold in your hand, and gently page from one to the next as the perfect typography leads the eye intelligently on and on. I have to say it once more. The USA publishers have a special knack for crafting beautiful, real paper books. Book number one, you may think, is not up to every reader's alley, but if words such as copy edit and mentions of grammar and punctuation put you on the back foot, Dreyer's English, subtitled, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style, is a movable feast of a read. The subtle humour of that subtitle, and even the mock arrogance of the title itself, suggests that Benjamin Dreyer's new book about American English usage is fun. Surely, all resolute readers love the seamless sentence, the high of an impeccably turned phrase. And Dreyer, who has for decades led the prestige publishing company Random House's copy editing division in New York, is as finely tuned to the punch of perfect prose as only a master can be. Delightfully straightforward and clear, he addresses the issues that can sharpen a writer's intent, and we, as pleasured readers, respond to. Needless to say, what is never far when he relates, and I quote, "fancy little tricks I've come across or devised that can make even skilled writing better." End quote. Dreyer is not a sticker for old, embedded rules, always arguing for clarity of meaning and intent. Fuddy duddies of split infinitives and sentences starting with conjunctions are given short shrift, but he does argue that you need to know the rules before you transgress. He holds the common sense of accuracy when, for example, he explains that when a family has two children, the one is the younger and the other the older. Only if there are three kids is one the eldest. There is lots of fun in Dreyer's English, also because you can take it and leave it. My second American book of choice this month is a winner of a different sort—a fine hardcover of nine super short stories by a relatively new writer called Jamel Brinkley. His debut, *A Lucky Man*, has garnered wide acclaim with various prize nominations in the states. 
What makes it so special is the unusual voice that Brinkley brings to contemporary American prose with these vivid, tight tales at a time when gender issues, ultra-masculinity, etc., are questioned in social and political arenas. At the same time, given what I've said about the pleasures of well-crafted prose earlier, Brinkley's writing is finely polished with a remarkable tense dynamic that charges the small narratives he unwraps and concludes so skillfully. The nine stories take up the uncertain, sometimes fractured world of young or middle-aging black men from the Bronx or Brooklyn in New York. In nicely expanded reads over more than the usual number of pages, it engages the reader fully with the ambience, the social settings, and in getting a grip on the psychological and emotional profiles of the characters. Masculinity and conflict with reality of emotion, expectation, and achievement becomes a shifting contested state in nine gorgeous narratives. One of the finest stories, titled Everything the Mouth Eats, tells of two half-brothers reuniting at a festival where they struggle to talk about the abuses by the father figure when they were growing up. The question of trust, that of family, brother, man to man, hangs awkwardly and unresolved between them. Are they caught in the moral morass of the past? Trust is the central theme throughout the anthology. In the title story, a school security guard's marriage gets unstuck because of his curious obsession with taking photos of women's faces on the subway. Betrayal happens in unobvious, surreptitious situations. Young boys' social anxiety, peer posturing and sexual confusion come graphically into play in beautiful tellings such as No More Than a Bubble, Juvert, 1996, and I Happy Am. Portrayed by hints of magical realism, in this searching for a place in the world, nothing seems sure and yet. In the story Infinite Happiness, he sums it up thus, and I quote, For most people there is a gap, for some a chasm, between the way they dream themselves and the way they are seen by others. That gap might be the truest measure of one's loneliness. End quote. Brinkley writes with such elegance that it infuses his prose with cheer, specks of optimism and hope, even if that is simply an existential reality. He makes sure we know beauty endures even if good is not always apparent. It's a super high recommended read. Never meet again 
They Can't Take That Away From Me by Cecily Pepler with Vernon Varty on jazz guitar. Peter Soule invites us into a White House driven by vicious infighting and a president who is described as erratic, irrational and unpredictable in Siege, Trump Under Fire, written by veteran journalist and media commentator Michael Wolfe. Michael Wolff was respected as a veteran journalist and media commentator before he turned his attention to the presidency of Donald Trump. This he did with great success with Fire and Fury, published in 2018. The book was a publishing winner describing the White House as being consumed by controversy, chaos and intense rivalries. It sold more than one and a half million copies in the first week, and spent weeks at the top of the best-selling lists, drawing harsh condemnation from the White House. Now Wolf is back with Siege, Trump Under Fire, which documents a White House driven by vicious infighting and a president who is described as erratic, irrational, and unpredictable. An administration well into its four-year term is under fire from almost every angle, and while it was known Trump was illiterate, Wolf now reveals that he is innumerate as well. Dysfunctional and inept, he says. He can't walk down steps and doesn't know how to use a phone. He is terribly insecure and prefers to be never alone. He even resents the fact that his adolescent son, Baron, passing through a youthful growth phase, is about to overtake him in height. How do I stunt his growth, he often asks. At the outlet of Trump's second year as president, his situation was completely different. He was no longer calmed down by experienced advisers, most of whom he had fired in his first year. He's now on his own and showing how impulsive and volatile he is. A good example of this is his relationship with his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. This swings from eager support to outright hostility, although he does on occasion take Kushner's advice as he did on North Korea. His attitude to begin with was outright hostility and aggression until Jared convinced him to engage Kim Jong-un as this would be the easier path and might even win him a Nobel Peace Prize. Another fixation he has is with the wall he wants to build on the Mexican border. This consumes him. 
He never misses an opportunity to raise the issue. But the Democrats who control the lower house are totally opposed to the project and will not approve the funds necessary for its construction. He therefore constantly seeks alternative sources of funding for his pet project. But the legal wolves are circling. There was the Robert Mueller so-called witch hunt, and federal prosecutors were peering into his private business affairs. Many in the political establishment had turned on him, even some members of his own administration. The Democrats smelled victory at the polls and possible impeachment. With all this on the go, Trump remains invincible, making him all the more exposed and vulnerable. Wolf notes that week by week, Trump becomes increasingly erratic. The question that lies at the heart of his tenure becomes ever more urgent. Will this most abnormal of presidencies at last reach the breaking point and implode? Siege, Trump Under Fire by Michael Wolf is published by Little Brown and is a fascinating insight into the eccentricities of an unstable individual controlling one of the world's superpowers. Persons interested in politics and American politics in particular will find this narrative difficult to put down. Rodney Trajan brings us to the end of this month's Literary Hall with a book fitting to mark the beginning of Women's Month. He spoke with Mike Bruton, author of Curator and Crusader, the life and work of Marjorie Courtney Latimer. It is the first biography of this phenomenal East London woman and her scientific discoveries, discoveries which famously included the coelacanth. Well, thank you. There's a fascinating new book that's just been released called Curator and Crusader, The Life and Work of Marjorie Courtney Latimer. It's been written by Mike Bruton. And listen to this. A mystery egg. Is it a dodo's, a wandering hippo, an enigmatic human skull, a secret visit by a famous aviator, a mysterious monster, the most famous fish in the world, the coelacanth, ancient human footprints, the German settler centenary, a museum ghost... These were just some of the ingredients in the incredibly colourful life of pioneering museum curator. These were just some of the ingredients in the colourful life of pioneering museum creator and environmental crusader Marjorie Courtney Latimer. And Mike Bruton is with me here. It must have been such fun putting this book together, Mike, apart from all the hard work. But she's incredibly decorated, isn't she? She's won endless awards. Yes, it was fun putting it together because I knew Marjorie since childhood and we stayed in contact throughout our careers. But despite her very humble beginnings, it's quite remarkable how many accolades and awards she received, among them an honorary doctorate from Rhodes University and the Freedom of the City of East London, plus awards from several foreign countries. You mentioned her humble beginnings, which were certainly humble, but also she didn't really have any tertiary education, did she? Well, in fact, she didn't even complete matric. She started school two years late. She had to go out and work before she could complete her matric because the family needed income. And so she had no post-school qualifications whatsoever. There's a lovely story in the book about how she got her first job, which perhaps you can relate, at the museum in East London. Well, it was 1931 in the midst of the Great Depression. The East London Museum had just been built and they were in the process of appointing the first curator. And there were apparently 25 um, applicants. Marjorie didn't apply. She was too shy and she was encouraged to be interviewed. And she arrived looking a bit like a country bumpkin with a homemade dress <laughs> decorated with the bluebells of Scotland, a straw hat with a flower in the brim. 
and she was interviewed and it became quite apparent that she had no management experience whatsoever but she totally blew the committee away with her incredible knowledge and understanding of natural and cultural history and that is what got her appointed and it was a great decision because she was a director for the next 42 years and from those humble beginnings took her museum onto the world stage Tell me, Mike, how did she get into the life that she chose? I mean, we know that she got to the museum, but when did this passion for nature and birds and animals and fish come? Was that right from her early days as a child? It was. uh, The family actually spent the first three years of Marjorie's life in Cape Town, living in Mowbray. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, her father, Eric Latimer, was appointed as a South African Railway station master. And this resulted in, in him being posted in rural areas all over South Africa. They lived in 26 different locations in the first 25 years of her life. And in each location, encouraged by her mother, Willie, who was a very keen natural historian, they explored the environment. Marjorie had five sisters, so it would be the six sisters and the mother exploring the local environment making collections of natural and cultural history objects and and not only developing a knowledge but a deep understanding of ecology of sociology and and so on so it was through that those experiences and the reason why they Willie put such a big emphasis on this Willie her mother was that the schools that were available to them were very poor and in fact, sometimes they were in places so remote there were no schools. So Willie decided to supplement her formal education with informal education, and she became the scientific equivalent of a child prodigy. She was phenomenally um, knowledgeable about nature when she was interviewed for the museum. There are lovely stories in your book, Mike, about, for example, the way she dressed and used to go out and come back with her clothes all ripped to shreds because mm. she was not really fashion conscious, was she? And she wore something like a nurse's dress for a long time. Well, she had actually been registered to be a tra- probationer nurse at Grey Hospital in King Williamstown shortly before she was interviewed for the museum post. And her, she and her mother made 24 nurses' uniforms. So after she was appointed to the museum, she decided not to waste them and wore them to the museum for the first two years. And subsequently, many of her dresses looked very much like a nurse's uniform. But she, even on the most robust field trips, she was a very dainty lady. She, she always wore long dresses and stockings. So, you know, you'd see her climbing up a thorn tree to look at a bird's nest, come down, her clothes would be completely shredded. But uh, by the evening, she was in new clothes again, always looked neat. And Mike, am I right in saying that really the biggest event in her life was the discovery of the coelacanth watch when she was what age? She was 31 years old when it was caught off East London in December 1938. It's probably the event for which she's most famous because mm-hmm. she played a pivotal role by keeping that specimen for science and bringing it to J.L.B. Smith's attention. But in fact, there are many other events where she played a more important role in terms of the research. One thinks, for instance, of the Hofmeyer skull, which was brought to her attention, which has turned out to be pivotal evidence for the out-of-Africa theory of human evolution. The Canameria fossil, the only full fossil skeleton of this famous mammal-like reptile. Ancient human footprints. She was the first bird ringer in South Africa. And in probably her greatest contributions were to ornithology. She was also a very well-known malacologist, collector of snails and, and, and seashells. <laughs> Remarkable. So, so, you know, in those days one could 
make contributions in many different fields. And of course, she was an extremely highly respected founder member of the Southern African Museums Association. It must have been an incredible experience and pleasure to have met her and been associated with her. And also, Mike, just briefly being able to have access to all her papers for your book. Absolutely. Her diaries, her scrapbooks, her father's diaries. I really don't envy modern historians have to rely on tweets and emails. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mike, well, thank you. It's an extraordinary book in many ways. As I say, it's beautifully illustrated and a lovely story to be following. So congratulations. Let me say it's called Curator and Crusader, The Life and Work of Marjorie Courtney Latimer, and it was written by Mike Bruton. Mike, thanks very much. That's a pleasure, Rodney. And we have competition winners. They are Vanna, Victoria Hoffman, and Kalim Foster, who each receive a copy of Delia Owen's Where the Crawdads Sing. And Denise Faree walks away with the gorgeous coffee table volume of Getaway Photography, The 30-Year Safari, edited by Justin Fox. Thanks, as always, to Rick Everett for the uplifting choice of music, Mwandi Lobi for bringing the show to life, and it's matinee up next with Waldo Buckle after the news. From me, Cindy Moritz, it's happy reading until next month. Mm-hmm.